How important is the book of Genesis? Find out today on Change by Grace. Welcome to Change by Grace. I'm Pastor Steve Herford. Genesis means beginning. It is here where we find how things began. And today we're going to do a jet tour through the book of Genesis and learn how important this book is and why it is often attacked. Well, with your Bible open to Genesis, let's study together from God's Word. Well, take your Bible tonight and turn with me to the book of Genesis. I have a great task ahead of me tonight, and that is to give you an overview of the book of Genesis. Genesis is not a small book. Of course, I realized that yesterday as I was completing my study. There are 50 chapters that are found in Genesis, but what we have there is an amazing testimony of God's goodness and His grace. There are a lot of things that are seen in the book of Genesis. And I want to begin right there in the first verse. It's found in chapter 1. And I want to talk about, first of all, the title of the book that you're holding in your hands. It says, In the beginning, God. And you just stop right there. Because Genesis means beginnings. One writer says, It is the seed plot of the entire Scripture. It enters the very structure of the New Testament, and which is quoted about 60 times in 17 books. Now the title Genesis, which means beginning in the Greek, it was applied to this book by the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Genesis tells us the beginning of everything except for one thing. It doesn't tell us the beginning of God. In fact, the entire Scripture is that way. It assumes that God exists. It doesn't tell us about His beginnings. Nor does it tell us anything about God ever ending. We've had people throughout history saying that God is dead or God does not exist. you know what Psalm 14.1 says? The fool has said in his heart, no God. You have to be a fool to say that there is no divine Creator. Now, the early chapters of Genesis, they don't argue that God exists. They simply assume that He exists. And they describe a beginning about which only God could know. Now, chapter 1 and 2, it tells us the beginning of the created world. Chapter 3 tells us the beginning of sin and the beginning of the promise of redemption. Chapters 4 through 9 tell us the beginning of family life and the beginning of civilizations. Chapters 10 and 11 tell us the beginning of the nations. And then chapters 12 through 50 tell us the beginning of a chosen people. Now, who wrote this book? Of course, God wrote all of the Word of God. But who was the human element that he used? Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. But folks, Mosaic authorship was not seriously questioned until about the 18th century. Astruc, who was a French physician in 1733, he noted the use of different names of God in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, the, the use of the Hebrew term is Elohim, and in, in verse 2, the word is Jehovah. And so he concluded that Moses used two different sources. Eichhorn, who was the German scholar, 
1780, he divided all of Genesis and Exodus 1 and 2 on the basis of the use of Elohim and Jehovah, those two words I just mentioned to you. He assumed that repeated events and two divine names indicated different authors. And then, of course, various scholars expanded the theory of multiple authorship. Wellhausen, he provided a classic expression as the documentary hypothesis, and this is how he broke it down. He said that the J parts, that is the Jehovah parts, were written by an unknown author in the southern kingdom. He said the E parts, or the Elohim parts, were written by an unknown author in the northern kingdom. He further said that there was a redactor who combined the J and the E parts. And then he said the D parts, or the Deuteronomy through Kings, were arranged by the priest Hilkiah. The P part was composed in stages, which is the priestly parts, from Ezekiel to Ezra. Now, folks, you have to really have an incredible imagination to come up with stuff like that. The best way to assume who wrote the book is to let the book speak for itself. And that's what I want to do right now. Mosaic authorship is supported by various elements. First of all, the Pentateuch itself. Now, Penta means five, and that's where we get the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But notice within those books that the authorship is given to us. It says over in Exodus 17 and verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book. Over in Exodus 24 and verse 4, it says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. In Exodus 34:27, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words. Over in Numbers 33, the first two verses says, These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 9 says, So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests. Let me ask you, who wrote the book of Moses? We have right there... In the Pentateuch itself, the first five books, just scattered verses talking about Moses writing at the command of the Lord. Now let's take the Old Testament itself. Over in Joshua chapter 8, in verse 31, it says, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, has commanded, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now the first five books are called the law, aren't they? And here it is called the law of Moses. Malachi 4.4 says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel, with the statutes and the judgments. Again, an affirmation from the Word of God itself that Moses wrote the first five books. Now, what about the New Testament? I think the greatest testimony to Mosaic authorship is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It says over in John chapter 5 and verse 46, For if you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And here he equates here the writings of Moses and Moses writing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Over in John seven nineteen, he said, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you still seek to kill me? Even in the book of Acts, Luke is quoting from Deuteronomy 18, 15, 
which says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. You can even go into the book of Romans, Romans 10 and verse 5, where Paul quotes from Leviticus 18.5. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. And then one more verse from the New Testament is Mark 12.26. And you can compare this with Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses... In the burning bush passage, that's chapter 3 of Exodus, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now folks, it's very important that we start here at this point. Because again, so many people have brought speculation to the Word of God. You always have someone in a corner shouting from a rooftop, questioning the Word of God. You even have it going on within our own denomination, folks. Now, what's the date for the writing of Genesis? Well, Genesis was written after the Exodus, so that was 1445 B.C. But before the the death of Moses, which was around 1405. So somewhere between 1445 and 1405. Norman Geisler, he believes that Moses wrote Genesis during the first 40 years of his life because during this period Moses came to faith in God and the desire to deliver his people. Who are the readers? Who are the recipients of this book? Of course, you and I are the recipients, but anytime you study any book of the Bible, you want to go to the author's intent of what he wrote and who he was addressing. Genesis was written for a nation of Hebrew slaves in Egypt. Again, Norman Geisler says, What could be more assuring for them than to know from the records of God's revelation to their fathers that God had promised to deliver them from Egypt? Because it talks about what took place in Egypt. It talks about them being in a place where they were strangers and being brought back to that promised land. Now, what is the theme of the book of Genesis? Well, just the name itself tells us the theme, right? The book of beginnings. The main theme or the main subject matter, it consists of origins. We learn the origin of the created world, the origin of the human race, of the various nations of the earth, and of course of the covenant family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, let's look at some of the content that's found here. Genesis is a large book, and uh, if any of you sat down and made any attempt at reading it, you find that it takes a lot of work to sit there and do it in one reading or a couple readings. But there's rich content that's found there. Let's begin in chapter 1. Genesis, as Terry Holbert points out, is developed around the four great events which dominate the first 11 chapters, and the four great men which are prominent in the remaining 39 chapters. So let's look at the first four great events. The first of the greatest events, of course, is the creation. And that's in chapter 1 and takes us all the way into chapter 2 through verse 25. In chapter 1, we see that that records to us a summary of the six days of creation. Now, if we had the time to read this, 
and I'm going to have to leave you to the reading of this, we would find some very interesting things when we talk about the creation itself. There are many people, again, that want to bring speculation on the first 12 chapters of Genesis. But folks, if you believe the first verse of Genesis, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you have nothing, no problem with anything else found in the Word of God. So we see here in chapter 1, it records a summary, a summary of the six days of creation. Now the first verse tells us who is responsible for the creation of the heavens and the earth. And what's it say there? God created the heavens and the earth. Verses 2 through 31 tell us about his creative work. Now on the first day, what did God create? We see that he created light, which he called day, and darkness, which he called night, And all of this, of course, would include heat and energy and so forth. On the second day, God made the firmament and he divided the waters. And he called the firmament heaven. You see that down in chapter 1 and verse 6. That would be the atmosphere, the clouds, the space above the earth and below. And then on the third day, God created where he separates the dry land from the water. It says here that he created grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit. See that there in verse 11 of chapter 1. And then verse 14 tells us on the fourth day we see that time begins. Because it says here in verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And it also tells us that he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. God created on the fifth day. This is where the water and the air is populated. We see down all the way in verse 21 that he created the sea creatures and the birds, every living thing that creeps or every living thing that moves. And then on the sixth day, land animals and man appears. The land creatures, the beasts, the cattle, and everything that creeps on the earth. And then, of course, in verses 26 and 27, we see the creation of man. A lot of things happen there in chapter 1. That's why we say chapter 1 is a summary. Because when you get into chapter 2, it records the detail of the creation of man and woman. And, of course, the command concerning the tree of life. That's what you find there in the first two chapters of Genesis. That's the first main event that occurs in the book of Genesis. The first great event. Now, the second great event picks up in chapter 3. And it goes from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way into chapter 5, verse 32. And that second great event, of course, is the fall of man. The fall of man. If you go into chapter 3, you see the first seven verses record the temptation and the fall of man. Verses 8 through 19, it records the confrontation of Adam and Eve's sin and the curse as a result of it. In verses 20 to 24, it records Adam and Eve being made to leave the Garden of Eden. Notice what he says here in verse 22 of chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Merrill Unger says, 
worldwide traditions of the fall are found among the Chinese, the Hindu, the Greek, Persian, and other peoples. And like similar creation and flood stories, they go back to actual events in history, but being corrupted in its transmission. That is one of the wonderful things that archaeology offers to us, especially with the book of Genesis, because we're finding ruins of various sites and places. And we're finding extra-biblical material that is mentioning similar events that take place during that period. Now, when you get into chapter 4, the first five verses record the offering of Cain and Abel to the Lord. And then, of course, verses 6 on down to verse 16, it records Cain murdering Abel and God's judgment on Cain. And then verse 17 down to verse 26, it records the line of Cain and the birth of Seth to Adam and Eve. And then we move into chapter 5. Chapter 5, in a way, is easy reading. Why is it easy reading? It's easy reading if you could pronounce all those names, right? <laughs> chapter 5 records the genealogy or the generations of Adam through the birth of Noah. And notice some things that are very unique about chapter 5. And that is how long people lived. For example, Adam, according to verse 5, he lived 930 years. In verse 8, Seth, he lived 912 years. In verse 11, Enosh, he lived 905 years. What do you see that's taking place in all this? It's gradually going down. You see that? And then, of course, down in verse 14, it goes back up. And you see Canaan, he lived 910 years. And then you go down to verse 17, and Mahahalil, he lived 895 years. And then if you go down to verse 20, Jared lived 962 years. And then you go all the way down to verse 27. Well, let's back up. Verse 23, Enoch, and we know about Enoch. He didn't die, did he? What's it say there? Verse 22, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and he begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Isn't that wonderful? We see kind of a picture there of the rapture. Here he escaped death. And then, of course, the oldest person to live was Methuselah, verse 27. He lived 969 years. So those are some interesting features about chapter 5. And so we see that the fall of man as the second great event. Now, the third great event that's found in the book of Genesis is the flood. And that takes up chapter 6 all the way into chapter 9. Terry Holbert says, as a result of the pressure of increasing debauchery, God sent the flood, which was important not just for its immediate destruction, but for its far-reaching results. These included the commission to populate the world and the mandate of human government. Now, he's talking about after the flood. Of course, Noah and his family was given the commission to repopulate the world, and then we see human government being instituted. Now, in chapter 6, we see the mixing of the godly and the ungodly. And then, of course, judgment falls in chapter 7 as a result of what happened in chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. And look at what that says there. It says, Then the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made, the man, made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, 
creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. You see, folks, we see the destruction of man coming because of his own depravity, because of his sinfulness. What's it say there? The wickedness of man was great in the earth. And so there was one man that found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Who was that? That was Noah. It says there in chapter 6 and verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now when you get over to chapter 10, you see the distribution of the nations. That takes up chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 9. Chapter 10, that records before us the generations of the sons of Noah. And then, of course, chapter 11 records the confusion at Babel. Now, the reason for the action of God was because the people here in chapter 11, they refused to obey God in spreading abroad to replenish the earth. It says over in chapter 11 and verse 4, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And of course, God confused the languages which forced them to scatter. You know what else was taking place there, folks? Idol worship. What did it say that they were doing with that tower? A tower whose top is in the heavens. Now, you could read some history about some of this, and people put out some really good information on it if you want to find out further information of the idolatry and how that that has seeped into society even today. But we see here in chapter 11, it records before us the confusion that's at Babel. And now we get to, not only you have the creation, the fall of man, and the distribution of the nations, and then the flood, and now we get into Abraham. And you start picking up the four great men of the book of Genesis. Terry Holbert says to, to Abraham, God revealed his commitment to provide a land, a seed, and a blessing. This unconditional covenant was made known to the patriarch only after he had left his homeland by faith and come to Palestine. Folks, it was a big move for him to do that, wasn't it? In chapter 12, in verse 1, it records Abraham's call. Look what it says there. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, or Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Now that took some faith for him to do that. To leave a place that was very familiar and go to a place that was not familiar. To go to a place, a strange land. So, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it records the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is commonly known as the Abrahamic covenant. Look at what it says there. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then it says in verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Don't you like the obedience that you see in Abraham right there? Because you see right there in the first part of verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Well, what did the Lord say to him? The Lord said, get out of your country and go to a land that I will show you. That took faith. And we see his obedience expressed in his faith. Folks, obedience and faith go together. You can't separate the two. In fact, how can we really prove that we believe God unless we obey him? 
That's the only evidence or visible evidence that we have to show. Now, there are seven blessings or promises in this Abrahamic covenant. Look at them once again. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Seven blessings, seven promises that God gives in this unconditional covenant. And now this covenant was confirmed again and again. We find it in chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. We find it in chapter 15, the first 21 verses. We find it in chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. Chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. Chapter 26, the first five verses. And then, of course, in chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. Now, when you get all the way into chapter 21, because Abraham's life, it picks up from chapter 12 and it goes all the way into chapter 25. Now, when you get into chapter 21 you began to see the birth of the promised seed. And who was that? Isaac. The second greatest event in Abraham's life was the birth of Isaac. That was an essential link in the performance of God's promises. Chapter 21 records his birth. Now, I want you to go to chapter 22 because we see here the testing of Abraham to offer his son Isaac. We know it's a test because it says that to us. Verse 1, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. The entire events that pick up following verse 1 was a test. And folks, you know what the test was? The test was to reveal whether he loved God more than he loved his son. It was also a picture of Christ, was it not? Because Abraham was called to give up his only son. What did God do for you and me? He gave up his only begotten son. So we see a type of Christ here. It's found in chapter 22. There are, of course, all kinds of parallels that you find in chapter 22. But it certainly was a test. And folks, I'm glad to report Abraham passed the test. Again, you see his obedience all throughout this chapter. When he's told in verse 2 to take now your son, your only son, whom you love, notice that, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In other words, he was told to go to Moriah, but apparently he'd be told later which mountain that he would offer Isaac. Well, that's all the time that we have for our study today in Genesis. But I would like to encourage you to get the full audio CD, which is available for a gift of $5. And you can do that by calling us at 904-651-3351. Or if you prefer getting the free MP3 download, you can visit our website at www.changedbygrace.org. While you're on our website, there's another series that goes along with this one called the Genesis Record. It has 20 MP3 messages, and they're all available for free at our website. Well, I'm Pastor Steve Herford. I do want to thank you for joining us today, and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we study together from God's Word. Hi, I'm Pastor Steve Herford. And I would like to invite you to our 11 o'clock service this morning at Eastport Baptist Church. 
We're located at 1322 Eastport Road in Ocean Way. We are biblical, expository, and reformed. So I hope that you'll join us and worship with us together. I hope to see you then.